Wow, it is so good to be in this room and to hear you all singing and to see your faces. What a gift. And to know as well that those of you who are worshiping with us at home are staying safe and celebrating Jesus uh, together with us. Uh, for the next three weeks, I want to walk with you through an ancient book called Habakkuk. Uh, Habakkuk was a 7th century B.C. prophet. Special man. Someone said that Habakkuk was a guy who could look at his circumstances and be confused. But when he listened to his God, he began to sing. You'll see that because it's two chapters of questions and answer and then a psalm of praise at the end. Someone else said, through hardship, Habakkuk came to rejoice in God, not for his benefits, but for who he is. In some ways, Habakkuk may just be the man for the hour in America and for us as well. Uh, he was one of the 12 minor prophets, which doesn't mean unimportant by any means, but means they wrote brief works as opposed to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. These are the like Hosea, Joel, um, uh, Jonah, brief works. Habakkuk is among them. These are the last 12 books of the Old Testament as they're arranged in our uh, Bible. And he lived at a time of existential crisis. There was crisis in the city. He lived during the reign of a man named Jehoiakim, who ruled from 609 B.C. to 598 B.C., he was not a good king. He was a puppet king filled with corruption and uh, filled the city with an injustice. Under the weight of this injustice, the city was just about to collapse. Crisis in the city. There was crisis at the gates of the city as well. You, if you know your ancient history, in 605 B.C., the Battle of Carchemish decisively changed the dynamics in the ancient Near East. Babylon, this new upstart empire, uh, des destroyed the armies of Assyria and Egypt and would change the map. In fact, they're coming to the gates of Jerusalem and will soon take the last of Israel's 12 tribes off the map for good. And here's Habakkuk, this man of Judah, this man of God. He's called a prophet but he is struggling with his faith in the context of existential crisis. On his lips, Lord, the world is falling apart. Why won't you do something? It's a question that thoughtful people of faith are raising in our own day, isn't it? Why won't you do something? What's gonna happen to the world as we've known it when we look into the future towards existential threat? Well, this is the question that Habakkuk is raising. So it's so interesting for us to study together. And the question I want to raise is what wisdom do we find in the, the Lord's word through Habakkuk to his day for our own? And this morning, I'm going to start with three things. The boldness of faith, the humility of faith, and the security of grace. Let's walk through this together. First of all, Habakkuk teaches us about the boldness of faith. Let's uh, begin by reading where uh, Habakkuk begins in uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. If you've uh, got a Bible, pull it out. If you don't, navigate on your device over to the beginning of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. 
I would encourage you to read aloud with me any translation you like. I'm reading New Revised Standard Version, NRSV. If you're able, would you stand as a way of honoring God's Word and the one about whom it is written, Jesus Christ. Habakkuk 1, 1 through 4. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the Word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy Word. The oracle of the prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not listen? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see wrongdoing and look at trouble? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law becomes slack, and justice never prevails. The wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, judgment comes forth perverted. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. Please be seated. The boldness of faith. See how bold Habakkuk is in his prayer? He's saying, God, I've been praying for a long time. How long am I going to have to pray? And you're still not listening, right? Verse 2. And this is why. Why must I be made to look on violence and suffering destruction and evil. Why, if you're a good God, do I have to keep seeing this right in front of my eyes? Why? This is, now, this is very bold. I understand that many of us raise questions like this all the time. In America, many of us are not sure God even exists at all. But what you have to understand is, you know, in our day, because on the other side of the 60s, we resist authority. But this is a pre-modern, this is an ancient, this is a traditional society. No one would resist authority. Authority is to be respected. It's an honor culture, right? Your elders, your leaders, your deities. You would never, never speak a negative word or complain against them. And yet here Habakkuk does. He lives in that culture. And yet notice how he resists the cultural norms to come right in, in the presence of his God and say, what in the world are you doing? And not just privately, I mean, this made it somehow into circulation. Some people think that he may have been a worship leader because the musical references and the, uh, the psalm that he writes and the, and the focus on the temple. Here, uh, he may have been a temple musician. And he brings this book into the public square. And, and he brings his, his unbelief, his despair, his anger, in, 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 the, in, in the public, in the worship. And you go, well, what kind of testimony are you? You're kind of like an anti-testimony, right? That's what we would say. That's not what, I mean, other people, what influence will this have on other people if they think you're, you know, you know we, we like to sell God, right? Habakkuk is not a selling God. And it's so precious to see that the, uh, the people of God have preserved this text with its complaint and considered it sacred scripture. How bold. I mean, in a traditional culture, we go, don't you dare ever say this. You'll just make the gods angry with us. And he dares. What does he know about God that makes it safe, even maybe good, for him to bring this complaint? We're used to prophets complaining against God's people. These people, they never get it. This is a prophet complaining against the God of these people and directly to him. So what does this mean? 
What does this mean that this is in the Bible? Well, I think minimally it's got to mean that unbelief, that despair, that anger at God are not antithetical or the opposite of faith. They're actually part of faith. This is actually part of biblical faith. It's to raise your voice towards heaven in despair. Say, what? What are you thinking? It's part of faith. Your God says to you, I appreciate your thoughtfulness. I appreciate your desire to wrestle with truth. When it's confusing, I appreciate your honesty. I appreciate your sense of justice that makes you cry out when the world doesn't work the way it's supposed to be. I appreciate your yearning for peace and your unwillingness to make peace in a world where other people are not experiencing peace. Thank you for your lament. God says to you, I hear you. I I invite you to come with your complaint. Come and lament what's not right in the world, what's not right in your life. Speak your emotions honestly to me. It's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. You know God can take it. You know God cares. It's not a sign of distance in a relationship to to complain and to speak negative thoughts. It's actually a means towards intimacy. Two people who drive in a car forever in silence. If that continues to be the pattern, that's not intimacy. That's avoidance. Same thing spiritually. If we were just to be silent and God say, yeah, yeah, whatever you say, whatever you say, that's not intimacy. That's avoidance. God says, come, bring who you are into my presence, all that you are, with your faith and with your unbelief. He learned this from Abraham. He learned this from Jacob who wrestled with God until he'd get a blessing. He learned this uh, from Moses who argued with God, learned it from Job. Remember his complaint. He, He extensive laments. And at the end of the day, all the counselors come with their so-called orthodox theology. And Job says, and the Lord says to Job, you have spoken truth, not the others. He, he demonstrates for us the spirit that was in Martha of Bethany. Do you remember when Jesus came, the death of her brother? And what does she say so boldly to Jesus? Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. This is on you. Wow. That's the boldness of faith. So I ask you, brothers and sisters, what would you share with God if you had the freedom to really be honest? What would you say to him? What do you see in the world that you just can't make peace with and all you can do is to lament? God can take it. God even invites it here through Habakkuk boldness. There's a second thing we learn uh, from Habakkuk, and it's, I call it the humility of faith. Uh, Verses one through four, which we just read, give us Habakkuk's complaint against the Lord. But then in verses five through 11, the Lord responds. He gives a response to Habakkuk. Now, the response that the Lord gives actually is not what Habakkuk would have wanted. It's not terribly encouraging. In fact, it's terribly discouraging. The Lord's sort of saying, oh, um, you're complaining against injustice in Jerusalem. 
but I have bad news for you. I have something even worse. We read in verse 5 through 11, look at the nations and see. Be astonished. Be astounded. This is the Lord speaking back. For a work is being done in your days that you would not believe if you were told. For I'm rousing the Chaldeans, these are the Babylonians, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, that fierce and impetuous nation. God's answer is, yep, yep, yep. I'm hearing your cry. I'm taking action. I'm doing something. I'm going to crush injustice in Jerusalem. But I have to tell you, I'm going to use the Babylonians to do it. An even less just nation. Uh, Even less godly. A brutal and violent, a vicious nation is going to run through. This isn't meant to uh, help Habakkuk that much, and I'm sure it didn't. But it is the truth, historically, of what God is about to do. And so here's the point. God is saying to Habakkuk in this moment, I'm going to ask you to believe something you can't understand. And that requires humility. A work is being done in your days that you would not believe if you were told. You're not going to believe this. Now, he does tell him, right? It's sort of funny. It's like, you wouldn't believe this if I tell you, but he does tell him. Uh, the Chaldeans are coming, and it's not going to be pretty. He tells them, what you're not going to do is be able to comprehend what I tell you. There's no way in which you can look at the evil that's coming, the pain that's coming, the suffering and the injustice, and figure out how that's going to be a good thing for anybody. I can tell you, but you're not going to believe it. I, I call you to humility. You're not going to be able to imagine how redemption can come from this crisis. You, you can't right now from where you sit understand how good comes out of bad. You don't understand how life could ever come out of death. And here already we're being pointed to the cross of Jesus Christ. But it's beyond our imagination even now. The Lord says, oh, I hear, you. I hear your crisis. I hear the fear. I know what it's like to be bound and out of control to read the news, I understand that, and I hear with empathy. But you have to understand, I am acting to redeem. But what's about to happen, what is happening now, will not make sense to you in the short term. Be astonished. Be astounded. (laughs) Is this good news? Are you happy? I mean, how do you hear this today when you think about the crisis that we're in as a planet right now, as a country right now, and maybe even that you're in right now? This is hard stuff. But what you have to understand, if there really is a God, the kind of God that this book describes, if there is a God, there's no way you can know this God without humility in your faith, without intellectual humility. C.S. Lewis says, when you try to guess what's going through the mind of God in any given moment, it's a little bit like your dog trying to guess what's going through your mind when you read a book, right? (laughs) Think of that for a second. What does Fido think you're thinking? Well, you know, Fido's guess is about as good as your guess as to what God is thinking right now. There's an old argument for, not for the existence of God, but for the non-existence of atheists. And it kind of goes like this. If you think of God's knowledge, God knows all things. And so think of it as a set. It's a circle of all the, things, the facts that God knows. Then you know something less than that, right? So our knowledge, the little subsets, little other circles of God's knowledge. For the atheist to say there is no God, he speak, or she's speaking about that area outside of her knowledge, but still inside of God's knowledge. For you to know that there isn't God, you'd have to 
expand the circle of your knowledge, the set of your knowledge, until it's literally coextensive with the set of God's knowledge, and in which case uh, the atheist would be God. So it supposedly follows from this that uh, you can only be an agnostic, not an atheist. But, but it does teach us that we ought to have humility when it comes to something as beautiful and, and uh, unimaginable as God. Alvin Plantinga, this great philosopher in our day, uses an illustration. He says, if you look in your tent to see if there's a St. Bernard there, and you look and you see no St. Bernard, you, you, it's highly probable that there is not a St. Bernard in your tent. Okay, right? But if you look in your tent to see if there's a no there, do you know what a no is? Yeah, yeah, if you hike, I mean, these little midges that, that, that leave a disproportionate mark when they bite you, a, a no So he says, if you look in your tent to see if there's a no there, there is not a high probability that there isn't a no in your tent just because you can't see them. Why? Because they're not visible to the human eye. And then Alvin Plantinga asks the next question, the philosopher's question, okay, if God had a reason for evil, do you think it would be more like a St. Bernard or no seum? Right? Well, we don't know, but it could very well be like the no seum. In other words, God may have a reason we don't know, but let's not push God out the door simply because his reason isn't available to our limited intellectual abilities. What what God is saying to Habakkuk here is, look, Habakkuk, you have a choice. It's the same choice that we all face when we face circumstances that we don't understand or or find ourselves in crisis. Here, you have three options. You can walk away from me, God says, which is what the modern atheist has done. Or you can redefine me, which is kind of what the cultural religionist has done. We, we, We reduce God to one that we can understand, put him in a box take all the mystery out and say, oh yeah, this is my God. I'm gonna kind of make God up myself. Or we can embrace God as God is. God says, you can embrace me, but in the mystery, knowing me, but not knowing me. So he's saying, howl at what's not good in the world, but put humility into your faith. Don't explain away evil. But don't push me away either, even when your circumstances terrify you. For work is being done in your days that you would not believe if you were told, he says to Habakkuk. And he says to Isaiah, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. He would say at this very same moment to Jeremiah, for surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with a hope. Yes, the exile is coming. You guys are going to go away. A lot of people are going to die. There's going to be real suffering. The crisis is real, but I am going to use that experience in ways you can't imagine for the redemption of creation. And this is the story that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ on the cross. Let me ask you, would you respect a God who knew no more than you did right now? I don't, I don't think so, right? 
a God who knew no more than you knew, a God who is understandable and intelligible to you, who is scrutable, to use the old language, is a God that would not be worthy of your respect, not be worthy of your worship, not be worthy of our lives. We couldn't trust Him. But a child doesn't understand what's going on in her mother's mind, yet she trusts mom and should for her own safety. We, we see life through the windshield of a car, just a little slice as we navigate through a city. But the Lord we worship is one who sees as from an airplane in the air, seeing all of the twists and turns and all of the complexities, seeing the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning and knows how to work all things together for good. I know the plans I have for you, not to harm you, but for your welfare. It's the humility of faith. Uh, the third thing, the security of grace. Now, this mystery that I'm talking about, it's not a cop-out. This is not a kind of a black box theology. Habakkuk does really know, has real knowledge of God, and that's because God has revealed himself to him. And we notice when we come to verse 12, now Habakkuk starts to use some of the terms for God that God has used in making himself known to Israel. Notice how Habakkuk begins, even in the midst of his complaint, to identify the one to whom he is speaking, my God. Not God, my God. My Holy One. Not Holy One, my Holy One. Wow, that's a, that's a mind bender when you want to think about a sinful person like me speaking of my Holy One, the one who possesses me in holiness, but still possesses me in love. And then this great term, my rock, which is a really a, a solid, and a, that, that's, that comes up again and again in the history of Israel. I am your rock, O oh Lord, my rock and redeemer, the psalmist says in Psalm 19. See, the fact is what carries us through crisis is not an answer to our questions. It's not a solution to our problems. It's a person. It's a rock. It's a a living, loving, all-knowing, all-forgiving, powerful God who's made himself known to us in Jesus Christ. My rock and my redeemer. And so God says to you, as he says to me, as he said to Habakkuk, I know what you're going through. Tell me all about it. Tell me what it feels like. Don't pull away. Bring your tears to me. I, I save them in a bottle, he says through the psalmist. I know what you're going through. I want to hear it on your lips. I want to be with you in the midst of this pain and sorrow. Let us share it together as I walk with you through it. No, I will not throw you back on yourself in the midst of this. I will not ask you how bold was your faith, how humble was your faith. All I'm going to ask you is, could you trust me when I took your hand? and walk with you through this? Can you trust me as your God, as your Holy One, as your rock and Redeemer? This is the security of grace, not of our works or what we do to impress God, but of what God does when we are absolutely undone by life itself, even by God. If you say yes to that invitation, then you have an unshakable security no matter what crisis you navigate because they can take everything away from Habakkuk, but they cannot take away his rock. And that is true for you as well. Kay Warren, whose son tragically died by suicide several years ago, 
said something that stunned me in the midst of her pain. She said, even a broken tree can bear fruit in the garden of God's grace. Uh, Even a broken tree can bear fruit in the garden of God's grace. That gives me so much hope. Craig Grishel, who's written a book I would recommend to you, uh, it's called Hope in the Dark. He talks about pain in this book and he meditates on uh, Habakkuk a bit. He says, you know, we like to deny our pain and kind of crawl out of it as quickly as we can into a mountaintop experience. He goes, but think about life in the valley. It's not a good place to be, but it can be a fruitful place to be. He says, peaks are nice, but you don't see many farms on mountaintops. Why? Because things grow better in valleys. Your time in the valley may not be pleasant, but it's in the valleys of life that you grow closer to God and stronger in your faith. A bold faith, a humble faith, a faith in crisis is a faith that's growing stronger because of the security of grace. Helmut Tielicke knows something about this. He was a pastor in the middle of last century in Germany. He had every reason to ask why, and I'm sure that he did. Thyroid, cancer, Gestapo interrogating him. His whole church bombed out. I told you about this before in Stuttgart. Uh, one day he comes to, to, to preach a sermon, and they're standing in the rubble. The cathedral is gone, just worshiping in the rubble, which is a beautiful image, I think. They were there. And here's what he says about crisis. I do not believe in the future life because of some dream of the hereafter. I believe in it because I am already the companion of him who has begun a history with me and will never let me fall away from his faithfulness. With him, I go confidently into the darkness and inconceivability and total otherness of the future world. I shall always recognize him whose voice has always been as familiar to me as the shepherd's voice is to his sheep. He's talking about who? Jesus, the Galilean, the teacher, the man who walks with sandals, the man who gave his life for you and me on the cross. He's talking about Jesus who takes our hands in the security of grace. And if you want that security in your life, the thing to do is to get to know him to hear his word to you, to respond in faith and obedience when he calls you forth from death into life. Grace, it's a pretty good thing, grace. It's about a relationship with a person. I realized this week, and I'll close with this thought, that the the security of grace is an accomplishment of Jesus on the cross. The security of grace that you and I sometimes take for granted, it's actually an accomplishment of what Jesus did on the cross. Because remember, that moment was the greatest crisis in the history of the world. There had never been anything worse, more devastating than, than when humanity killed God. And Jesus, the Son of God, was right in the middle of it. And what does he say? What does he do? He laments. He says exactly what Habakkuk had said. Habakkuk turns out to be a precursor and a witness to Jesus, our Savior, on the cross. Why? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, there is a rift, an eternal rift, where no rift has ever before or ever will since occur. In the heart of the Trinity, the Godhead, between the Father and the Son, Jesus the Son experiences abandonment by God the Father. 
and he's, he's thrown into despair. If you don't think this, these words of despair are real, then you underestimate the humanity of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Here he is, separated from God, experiencing the full weight of spiritual judgment. And the question is, why? Why? He says, why? He's bold enough to do it. He knows the Father can take this question, so he says, why? Now, we actually know why now because of further revelation. Peter, 1 Peter 2.24 says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. That's why. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. That's why. Jesus experienced abandonment before God so that you and I never have to experience abandonment by God. Never. Jesus experiences radical existential insecurity so that you and I never have to experience real insecurity. We have a rock. It's an accomplishment of the cross. G.K. Chester said there's only one religion in which God seemed for an instant to be an atheist. Think about that. And he did so so that you and I can know the security of grace. I'll close with the words of Jürgen Moltmann who wrote, at the point where men and women lose hope, where they become powerless and can do nothing more, the lonely, unassailed, the lonely assailed, excuse me, and forsaken Christ waits for them. Let's pray. Lord, here you wait for us. Here you wait for us. Come, Lord Jesus, into the midst of our pain as we look into the future, as we read the news, as we see a world that seems to us to be in flames, underwater, as we try to make our way through the, 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 multi the multiplying forms of this virus, as we navigate racial injustice, as we look at food insecurity, Lord, we lament, we cry out to you why, but we thank you that at the end of the day what we have is not an answer but a person that here you are holding our hand, the crucified one, the risen one, to bring life out of death. We don't understand it, but we trust you. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit who makes that trust living and real in our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen.